Welcome to the Algorithmic Advantage. We're here to expand the toolkit of the quant trading community and introduce investors to the many advantages of systematic trading. Our goal is to educate and inspire as we embark on a captivating journey into the vast knowledge and experience of leading portfolio managers and other experts in the field. We hope you enjoy the show. And if you do, please subscribe, leave us a review, or even buy us a coffee via the link on the algorithmicadvantage.com. We really appreciate it. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Algorithmic Advantage podcast. And listen, if you haven't subscribed or shared this show with somebody that you know and love, well, you're you're not doing them any favours. You're not doing us any favours. So um, we'd appreciate it if you shared the show with, say, just that one other special person that you know needs to hear and learn something about quantitative trading. This show in particular is going to be very interesting because it's Rich and I talking about uh, the efficient markets, random data, validating the quantitative approach. And so in this special episode today, we are going to let Rich guide us through some of his research where he has looked at the nature of the efficient market hypothesis um, and the nature of using random data as opposed to real market data. And I think you'll be fascinated by the conclusions uh, that that are drawn by looking at uh, one versus the other. So we look at randomly generated trends versus real trends in the market. And we look at um, real patterns that occur in price uh, market data versus patterns that are generated by the random data. And I think you'll find that it will make you question looking at chart patterns. You won't look at chart patterns the same way again after this. And long story short, I think that this really scientifically validates the, the comprehensive quantitative approach to analyzing market data and that we ought to be doing that rather than being fooled by randomness. So Rich, really looking forward to this. Welcome to the show, mate. How are you going, buddy? Very good. Thanks, Simon. It's it's a monster of a hot day up here. I know you're up in Brisbane as well today, and uh, it's a blistering uh, heat wave at the moment for the last few days. So uh, we've got the fans going and um, hope hope we survive the next few weeks. Yeah, it's very warm. Hopefully we can um, stay hydrated and get this show uh, out with, uh, with all the punch that I think it's going to have. So launch right into it, Rich. What are we, what are we looking at today? Okay, Simon. So um, as you know, um, I'm a trend follower. And um, uh, in, in identifying these trends in the market data, um, I've undertaken a lot of research in, in trying to identify trends both visually and quantitatively. And um, in this process that I've undertaken, it's really questioned the use of, of visual methods um, in pattern recognition, et cetera, um, in identifying trends of material significance. And I've, I've found alternative ways to be able to um, identify trending opportunities using a, a, a bit more quantitative methods in identifying the bias in the data series itself. So when we're seeking to extract this edge from the market, um, we're, we're seeking enduring trends, those with persistence. 
um, that possess a directional bias in the data. Now, this directional bias doesn't necessarily show up in visual form. It's something that's got to be understood quantitatively. And the only way we can really do that is by putting side by side randomly generated data versus um, um, data with a bias in it to be able to discern um, the edge that we're wanting to extract with our trend following methods. So I've done a bit of a presentation here, Simon, which I thought I might get um, straight into. Um, and it's Perfect. going to step us through the process and um, also give us some good um, uh, walkthroughs as well, um, looking at this process of applying our trend following models to um, random data and real data. Um, it's it's quite enlightening. So do you mind if I get stuck into it? Can't wait, Rich. Let's go. All right. So um, in essence, we prefer to use these quantitative visual methods to identify bias in a trending um, data series as opposed to these visual chart patterns. Um, so I'll just move to the next screen. So what we're meaning with bias in the data is I've, I've got three charts up here, mate. Uh, on the very top chart, I've got um, a uh, market price series, which has been randomly generated. You'll notice that um, the random price series, this is a, a compression of, of a bar chart effectively over a period of about 20, 30 years or whatever. And you'll notice that um, it visually, this market price series looks as though it, there's a trend happening in that, that data series. But this is simply randomly generated data because I constructed it through a randomly generated process. And it also just looks like a regular price chart. If you put a ticker on the top of that, I would not know it was not a stock. Exactly. So we could apply this to any liquid market, Euro, USD, a commodity or whatever, and we wouldn't be able to tell. Now, this second chart here is this randomly generated price data with a small bias inserted at, in clusters along this randomly generated price series. So we've used this um, random data series up here and we have injected into that random price series a small degree of what we call serial correlated bias in there, which is basically extending the trend. It's, it's creating directional momentum on top of the random data series. And this is represented in this second chart here. Now, what you'll notice when you're comparing and contrasting these is visually they look a bit different because the scales we're looking at are slightly different. But you'll notice that it has the same overall shape that the random data series has. Now, hang on, Rich, you're looking at the third chart down. I'm looking at the second chart, the middle chart. The middle chart, which says it's a non-random price series. Yes, so what we mean we're... here... When we say it's a non-random price series, we're using the random price series here and we are inserting at distinct points along that time series what we call serial correlated clusters. Understood. Where over a small time series here, we might have a, 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 a positively serially correlated price series here, which is giving a slight bias to the price series. The same back here, the same back here, the same back here there will be these distinct clusters where we are making it non-random in those particular points of that random data series, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So visually, when you put them side by side, which is the final chart down here, you'll see that the random price series that we constructed in chart one is the lower time series here. 
And the bias price series here is the upper price series in this comparison. So in, in the final chart here, what we've done is we've um, put side by side the random price series that we generated in the first chart with the bias price series, which we created in the second chart. And we're not looking at the, the visual form of the price series. That's not giving us any clues about whether this is a, a bias price series. What is giving us the clue is the divergence between the two time series. And so when we look at the final price chart, you can see I've highlighted this divergence, which is uh, reflected by the bias we have inserted into that random data series. And this is what we're looking at for these material trends. We want some underlying momentum in the time series, which is more than just random, uh, randomly generated time series. There is some form of momentum or serial correlation in that time series, which is giving it this enduring momentum to last into the future. Because if I applied a trend following model to that first random price series, you'll find that um, as soon as you apply that trend following model, when you think there is a trend in place, the chances are great that you're gonna find it falls off a cliff as soon as you go live, because that is a randomly generated time series. And it's just the way that price is lined up in that series that gives you the impression there's enduring momentum in that trend. But when you then start applying your model to it, because you've identified this pattern in the market, You'll find that it decays immediately, usually, and that's the nature of randomness. Mm. Um, there, there is no sort of enduring momentum in it. However, if you trade that second price series we generated with that momentum in it, provided that that serial correlation in the future persists, that will be sufficient to create enduring momentum in the trending series. And that's what we're looking at when we're trading trending price data. Mm -hmm. So it's not a game of visually identifying trends. It's a game of quantitatively discerning if there is bias in that time series. And I'll now move on to some further examples that clearly demonstrate how hard it is to visually discriminate any um, edge in the market using random price data. Mm. So what we're going to do here is um, we're going to compare and contrast the, uh, the real market data, which in this case is the data uh, in white on the black background, that's real market data. And we're going to compare that against randomly generated price data, which is the colored price chart you'll see on that screen there. So uh, we, we adopt, there's many different ways we can adopt randomization into our process. This, this way, what we're doing is we're saying, let's start at a common um, starting point at a particular point in time using the real market data. And then from that point in time, let's create a random sequence uh, from that uh, initial origin and see how that random sequence compares against that real market data. Now, all we've got to do there in this particular method of randomization is constrain its range, but allow randomness within that range constraint. So what we're doing is we're saying, let's look at a market such as the Australian uh, USD um, market, which is a, a Forex market. 
Mm -hmm. We say, we note that AUD-USD has a particular typical range. Uh, let's apply randomization within that range and see what the nature of that random data is when we compare it to the real market data. So that's the only thing you're changing. That's the only uh, thing we're changing. Is, is keeping the range uh, relatively similar to what the range of that product is in reality. Exactly. So what we'll find, we'll go into a, a more detailed uh, example, but what we'll find is that both types of data, the real market data and the randomly generated data, they both offer trends, but you'll be unable to visually discriminate between the two. You'll mm. also notice that the random data uh, includes all of the things we're familiar with in technical analysis, such as support and resistance lines, uh, uh, if we apply any indicator, such as a relative strength indicator or a stochastic indicator or whatever, it identifies buy signals, sell signals, exactly how it does with real market data. And it comes the patterns, to the same I conclusion. can see, you know, pennants, bull flags and double exactly. bottoms and it's all there. No matter which type of um, indicator we want to apply to this price series, you will not be able to discriminate between the two. So... Um, but the key thing here is that one lacks this enduring trending momentum and the other, being randomly generated, um, has, has no enduring momentum and the other, being real market data, has periods of points throughout that time series where there is this bias in the data which is sufficient to create trends. So what I'm going to show you now, Simon, is um, I'm going to flick to um, my MetaTrader example here. And... Mm -hmm. um, so here uh, you'll notice uh, the real market data in white and mm -hmm. we have the random series being generated in the colored random series here. And as we step through this chart in its history, we'll notice that the patterns between the random data and the real market data, it's incredibly difficult to identify any difference between the two, but they do offer different trajectories in points of time. This random data is going up this real data is going down. And as we're stepping through this time series, you'll start really wondering, well, how do we uh, use technical analysis, et cetera, to identify an edge if this is suggesting that random market data has all of the properties that real market data has? Now, what we've done here, Simon, is as I step through here, we're comparing and contrasting the random market data and the real market data. Mm -hmm. And now we come to a particular point here where I'm doing another thing to the random market data. So the random market data is this green and red um, colored data here. Now what I'm doing in these squares is inserting a degree of serial correlation into that random series. So the green and red at this point in time, at this box here, over this period in time, I'm saying, apply a small bias to that random market data and see what happens to that random market data. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to compare the impact of this biased randomized market data with the real market data. And when we look at the real market data in white here, we'll notice that at this point here, we had a significant downturn in the real market data in the yes. white. This is a trending opportunity. And what I'm trying to do with this random market data is create serial correlation to drive that random series down over that point in time. 
Yep, to and replicate uh, another trend that we can compare the real trend versus the correct. artificial all, trend. All I'm doing is applying very weak, very weak bias to that random data series, and it's sufficient to totally change the trajectory between the random series and the bias series in opposite directions, only through a very weak bias I've applied only over this, this interval depicted by this square. Yes, and just remind me, if you remember, the, the basic mechanism for inserting that bias is really um, uh, making a, a, the coin toss instead of a 50-50, might be a 55-45 chance of ending lower than higher. Exactly. And therefore Look, we're driving... I'll explain how we constructed this random data. I said to you how yes. we looked at um, AUD-USD, we looked at its traditional range, and we said, all right, within that range, let's apply a randomization function to that range. And the way we did that was to simulate a flicking of an unbiased coin. But if you can imagine, we had a range from 0 to 10, where we said between 0 and 5, if if the random number generator falls between zero and five, we'll go short. Mm. If it lands between five and 10, we'll go long. And we'll, oh, we'll move the market this, up or down, the price up or correct. down. Yep. We'll apply this randomization on a minute by minute process. And once that randomization has been done, we'll compile those minute bars together into daily bars. And when we do that, this is the result we get. So that when we flip the coin, let's say 1,440 minutes, 1,440 times to generate one end of day um, candlestick, we will have obviously have, we'll have a starting price, we'll have a, uh, a low price, a high price and a closing price. So we've got our four data points from the minute data and we take those four data points from the minute data and call it a daily candle, that's our random data. And if we want to exactly. bias that slightly down or slightly up, uh, we simply um, bias so if you the imagine coin flip in, ever in this so point slightly. here, where, where I created this bias in the data here, all I did was I say, now let's make zero to four, oh, sorry, mm. zero to six short, let's yes. make seven to 10 long. So mm. I've slightly biased the outcome in this section here, sufficient to totally change its trajectory. And this it is creates the nature, a lovely trend. Exactly. creates a beautiful trend, only with a very small bias in there. And this is the nature of the butterfly effect coming into action on random data. A very small change is sufficient to totally change the trajectory, price trajectory, on random data when you're incorporating bias into it. This is this mm. nonlinear relationship being applied in, in uh, market price series. So you can see how the trajectory significantly changed here over this interval of time. Then from this square to this square, we've got a period where this random chart here identically represents the random chart here. Mm -hmm. There is no bias in this series. There, They've got the same trajectory, same overall profile. Then once again, in the real market data, we see this long trend coming up here. So what we're doing here on this random market data, we're applying a small, long bias to the data and notice the difference. Now what happens is that the, the random data with the bias in it starts converging back up in a long direction 
towards the random series up here. That's because we're applying a small long bias here. Upward bias there. And what I love about that is that uh, the, the long bias takes a little while to kick in. It's actually the, the market's still... Uh, Random. You know, trend sideways for a while, so that even though there is that bias, obviously there's still a you know forty percent chance that exactly. it's not effective. So if you imagine again, flicking that coin, often mm. it's going to fall at a two or an mm. eight or whatever, and so the bias isn't going to change uh, between the random series and the the non-random series. So this is the nature of randomness and, and the impact time, of yeah. randomness on bias. Um, mm. It's quite significant. So what you'll see in this example here, we've only got one, two, three, four, and there's a final one up here, that, that there's only four periods of bias mm -hmm. um, inserted as serially correlated clusters in this entire time series that we've inserted in here. And now what I'm gonna do is show you how this impacts our trend following models. Mm-hmm. So we've already gone through this example here. So here we go. So we've got three equity curves here now being displayed on this screen. The very top equity curve is the equity curve um, of the real market data being applied to a, a suite of trend following models that we're applying to that data. And it has a generally favorable upward sort of slope of the equity curve. It's quite volatile, but that's the nature of trend following models. This is for a single market. Mm. Now, the second chart here is when we apply that same set of trend following models to the random market data series, that green and red series we looked at, you'll notice that it decays to zero over the course of time. Mm. Now, this is because there is no um, enduring material trends in that random market data series, even though visually mm. they display clear trends. Exactly. Visually, I could see trends in that price series, and, uh, and yet the models which are looking for trends kind of say no. That's right. The models which have been, you know, um, sculpted in the backtest environment over huge data sets have said, these are the settings we're going to use for real market data. Now, when we apply those models to random market data, it fails. Now, this is the nature of randomness. This is the nature of the costs of slippage, the costs of trading, slowly deteriorating um, the overall profitability of the models when applied to a random market data series. Because we've got, uh, it's not a 50-50 bet in a real market data on a random series because there are the transactional costs, which is slowly going to eat the profits away from your model if there is no edge in that model. Yeah, so you do have transaction costs in the, uh, in the example here. Yes, this simulation here is incorporating all of the real costs of trading into the process. You, so what you see here is if this uh, random market data was real market data, this is the impact you get in a real trading setting or in this example, AUD USD. Now the very third chart, the third chart is when we apply those trend following models to that biased random series, where if you remember just previously, we only inserted four periods of small bias 
into that entire time series. Mm. And you'll notice that when we started the time series, um, it, we actually traded effectively a random series for a period of time um, until about uh, five, ten years into the model where we started inserting that bias. And as soon as we start inserting that bias, you'll see the equity curve step up um, in a, with positive expectancy. Now, when we compare the final chart here against the real chart, we'll mm. see that there's actually an even better equity curve produced through the um, randomly generated data with a small bias inserted in it. And we only applied a very weak bias into that series. Mm. So what this is suggesting to us from our trend-following models is that the edge that we're exploiting in the market data is very weak but it is it, even though it's weak, it's sufficient to totally change the ball game with the overall long-term profitability of our models. Mm. So we 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 understand that these markets are incredibly efficient. Very difficult to be able to identify any edge in these markets because they are efficient. But over the course of very long-term data sets, the serial correlation that exists at points in time in that real market data is sufficient to create profitable opportunities for trend-following models. So that's the first example of randomization. Hmm. I'm just imagining um, I'm just imagining an exchange that produces uh, contracts which are all nothing but random data. And I don't think too many people would be interested in trading that. They'd be quite afraid, right? They would say, well, I'm not going to trade randomness. I'm going to, I want to trade, you know, the AUD, USD, FX pair. Um, but, uh, yeah, as we've seen visually, just how the, the, the markets are very efficient and they really do approximate random data. We see the same things in both sides. So if you're going to, if you're going to attack uh, trading as a profession, then I think this is the point of this show. I don't want to reach the conclusion early, but please do this kind of analysis because... Um, how easy it is to be fooled by randomness or advertisements or some other um, offering out there. And, uh, and it's good to, we're giving people a real head start because if you start off on the right track like this, you've got a fighting chance. Exactly. Like I, I know how many years I spent in technical analysis thinking there was some substance to some of the things I was looking at visually. Mm. Um, and when I was applying my, my, range of indicators to it. I was developing this confidence, but this has sort of shattered that whole uh, notion on the basis that, um, and this is where great books such as, I think it's um, um, uh, David Aronson produced a great book, The Evidence-Based Nature of Technical Analysis or whatever, where he examined um, empirically using quantitative statistical analysis whether there was any edge in some of these patterns that people take for granted as offering an edge. And he was finding conclusively that there was no statistical edge in those patterns. Mm. This is also the conclusions I'm getting through this process of really digging deep into looking at the difference between random uh, market data and real market data. Um, you know, I this, uh, I, I, I hope he doesn't mind me trying to paraphrase him, but I was listening to... Brent Penfold on Andrew's uh, podcast the other day, and he said something that is similar, and it's really, um, really important. And it's that he spent so much time working on um, 
on uh, uh, Elliott Wave. You know, he invested like a decade or something into Elliott Wave. And <laughs> by the time that he'd worked out, it wasn't really working for him. The reality was he'd trained so much of his brain, you know, it was like a Pavlov dog. So he still counts Elliott waves, even though he doesn't trade them anymore. And, um, and of course, there's this, uh, you know, behavioral bias of sunk costs, right? So, and they talked about that, that you've invested all of this time and energy. So if you start off trading on the wrong track and you invest all your time and energy into something that ultimately isn't going to be that fruitful, um, I mean, not only can you waste a lot of time, but you can um, you can bend your your mind the wrong way and uh, end up with you know bad expectations, false expectations, or um, or just models and behavioural I- or ideas about the market that you kind of have to then spend many years unlearning. Exactly. I, I know, for instance, um, when uh, I'll, I'll step into a, a process shortly which is going to suggest that it might take you up to 10 years to identify that you actually don't have an edge in these Mm. markets Mm. because that's the nature of randomness. Randomness can give you profitable outcomes and it can give you unprofitable outcomes. Over the course of, you know, a a coin toss example over, you know, um, as you approach infinity, of course, you see the edge play out on Mm. the, the, the unbiased coin or the biased coin. But um, over the course of time, there are long intervals that you can be fooled by this randomness. Mm. And we'll see a couple of good examples coming yeah. up. So um, I just want to go into um, the nature of how our market data plots when you look at it, um, a, a lot of data um, using um, you know, a distribution, assessing the market data in terms of a distribution. So. What you'll see on the screen here is a chart of a, a histogram of daily percent returns of any particular liquid markets. This is applicable to, um, I find, any market that I trade with my trend-following models. And what you'll find is that um, if you plot on the, the lower axis the percent returns uh, from zero in the middle um, to the right to um, higher daily returns and to the left to lower daily returns, You'll find that when you plot it under a, a random distribution, it'll fall within the uh, the normal distribution, and that's defined by that area in orange that I've highlighted on that chart. That's the bell curve, the typical bell curve that people um, understand. And what the bell curve says is it says that um, the distribution, uh, if it's normally distributed, uh, is likely that the data points are likely to plot, I think, uh, within one standard deviation of either side of the central mean, um, I think you encapsulate 68% of the data observations. When you go out to two standard deviations on either side, I think it goes up to something like 93% or something. I, I don't mm. know the exact figures, but it goes mm. like that. And what the, the nature of that distri- distribution plots is a normal distribution. So what that normal distribution says is that even under randomness, there are points in time where we can have significant profitable opportunities and significant losing opportunities if they fall within the extremes of the distribution itself. But overall, the distribution plots within this profile of normal distribution. However, when we look at long-term data sets of any liquid market data of the things that we trade our trend-following models on, you typically find that it approximates a normal distribution, which is showing how efficient these markets are because it's approximating it. 
but it is not strictly bound within the confines of the normal distribution. And so when you look at that, that um, distribution in blue, you see that at the peak, of, there's a peak to the distribution, which um, is around the mean of that distribution. Um, so in this case, we have a degree of kurtosis in the distribution with a peaked um, point. Mm-hmm. And around the central point of the distribution, this is the edge that is capitalized on mean reverting models. So if you can, if you understand the nature of mean reverting models where they oscillate about an equilibrium, you'd expect that um, when your mean reverting models are profitably extracting opportunities from market data, it should be oscillating about an equilibrium. In this case, it's around the peak of that distribution, around the central mean of the distribution. And that's why we have a high number of observations that fit in that peak. Mm. So anyone who practices trading strategies that are convergent in nature are extracting the opportunities that reside outside um, the normal distribution in the peak of the distribution around that equilibrium or around that mean. Mm. But you'll also notice that we've got these tail regions to this distribution over to the far right and to the far left. Now, this is where divergent models um, that trade these markets are extracting their opportunities. They're extracting them from the far right tails and the far left tails that occur in market data, which are more prevalent than what the normal distribution would imply. So this is where our trend-following models are extracting their edge. When we get into the tail regions of the distribution of data, we see that there is this positive serial correlation in that data, which is creating this bias and these material trends that mean that they extend into the future. And this bias is increasing the daily range of the data points. And that's why when we are trading trends and we're looking for these serially correlated patches in the market data, they're typically data observations that we're going to find in the tail regions of the distribution of market returns. However, in terms of serial correlation, it's not just positive serial correlation, which is for trending opportunities where uh, effectively a high follows a high, follows a high, follows a high. When we get a high followed by a low, followed by a high, followed by a low, that's another form of serial correlation, which is this negative serial correlation that exists around the equilibrium. And this form of serial correlation is what convergent traders are extracting opportunities from. It's another form of bias, but it's not a directional bias in the same direction, long or short. It's an alternating bias as it's going above and below that equilibrium. You see how uh, a high, then a low follows a high, then we get another high, then another low, then another high. That zigzag is occurring around that equilibrium. That's a convergent model. The positive serial correlation but the high follows a high, follows a high, or the low follows a low, follows a low. That's in the tail regions. And that's a divergent model. That's right. So there are two forms of edge being extracted by market players. The edge that they can't get any opportunities from, however, is that contained within the normal distribution because that is also reflected when we, um, for instance, get an unbiased coin and we flick it um, and so we get a result. Heads, flick it again. Might get another heads, flick it again, tails, flick it again, heads, etc. If we um, uh, look at an observation, say over 200,000 observations of flicking coins, and then we cluster um, the results into a sequence of 10 heads in a row, a sequence mm. of 
nine heads in a row, eight, seven, six, five, and do the same for tails, it's also going to fall exactly within a normal distribution over as we approach the law of large numbers. It's going to plot within that. But that was a, a, a purely random, unbiased coin with no opportunity in there. But we do find that there are sequences of tails, sequences of heads, even under a normal distribution. So it's going to plot within that normal distribution, but there will be no edge, enduring edge, that can be exploited through speculation. Mm. And so fortunately, when we look at any liquid market data over a very long time series, we see that it doesn't fit neatly within that normal distribution, which is a great thing for both convergent and divergent traders, because if, if it did fit within that normal distribution, we wouldn't have speculation today. Mm. Uh, no one would survive the randomness. Yeah. So um, that's when we look at the histogram of daily market returns. Um, so now let's look at the impact of serial correlation for trend-following systems. So here I've undertaken a different form of randomization where we're still using real market data. So we, the basis is the use of the real market data, but then it's a basis of shuffling that real market data to break the serial correlation that might reside in that real market data. And this randomization process we apply to shuffling the real market data, I'll just explain how we do it. So mm. the intent here is to destroy any serial correlation that exists in that data. And the way we do it is through a randomization process of that real market data. So um, the way we do it, um, when we look at, um, typical price series, there's information we can extract from that price series. Now I'll go into the information that we do extract from that price series and then how we do the reshuffling. So in this, uh, we get a series of bars and in that those bars, we've got information like what is the high, what is the low, what is the body of, of the price candle, etc. I do so, see your mouse now, by the way, Rich. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. So Imagine the information that is contained within these two set of bars in real market data. We'll just break that down. So the first thing is we've got two bars of market data. And the way we look at this is we treat the current bar as bar zero and the bar um, one period back in time, we call bar one, two periods back in time would be two, three, four, five, etc. Then in the information contained in that sequence of bars, we've got uh, where the high is of the, this bar here, where the open is of this bar, where the close is and where the low is. So there are four points of information here, which we're wanting to get information from. And also the relationship between this bar at bar one and this bar at bar zero. What is the relationship between the close of this bar and the open of this bar? There's information there. Mm -hmm. So what we are doing is uh, we're looking at the information that we can extract from this. So in this example, um, we see the size of the, the upper wick, uh, which is a high at point zero, and the open of um, this candle here is the open at point zero. The difference between the two is information in relation to the wick um, of that particular bar. When we come to this bar here, we also the body has information where the open is in relation to the close. What is the difference between the two? There's information there. What is the relationship of the low to the close? Once again, there's information there we're drawing on. 
What is the relationship from the open of this bar and the close of the previous bar? There's information there uh, which we're seeking to extract from that relationship. Mm -hmm. Once we've got that from each of the bars in the historical data series of the real market data, we can then plot them into arrays and then we randomize those arrays. So all we're doing is we're using the, the real information that's in that data series, but we're, we're destructively interfering with any serial correlation or relationship between consecutive bars and we're reshuffling it all mm. to produce a new time series, which has been a basically a randomly shuffled series on a real uh, market data series. So this is what we get. So when we look at this um, chart here of market data, what we've got, the red series here is the real market data. Yep. This is the, the price series of the real market data. All of these alternative variants are randomizations. So in this case, we might have um, 13 randomized price series generated from that real market data series. And this is where they're all plotting. Mm. So if you just imagine that these are all potentially market data series, we don't, let's say, for instance, we don't know that this is the real market data series in red here we would assume that some of these series that express these significant trending opportunities would produce very stellar results when we applied a trend following program to them. Because yes, looks, I'd trade the blue one. Give me the exactly, blue one. Exactly, exactly. So it looks to us visually as though these hold the most opportunities. It looks as though they've got the most enduring trends. I mean, it's the same data. It's got the same start point, the same end point. So yes. we're looking at the same data. We've just reshuffled it and we've reshuffled the blue one to have the best trends, I'm going to say. Exactly. So uh, logically, I'd be the same as you. I'd say this one, this blue one up here holds the biggest opportunity for trends. I can see them, the trends in the market data here. So it must do well when applied to a trending environment. However, this is where the illusion of randomness hits us in the head because the reality is when we actually do this process and apply trend following models to these randomly generated series and the real market data series. And the outcomes are truly spectacular and really question our ability to infer anything from these visualizations. It's getting scarier and scarier. Exactly. <laughs> right. What does it look like? So then? what I'm going to do now is um, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to apply a series of trend following models to real market data, and in this case, Euro USD, since 1976 up to the current day. And we're gonna see how this ensemble of trend following models fares over this entire time series and the equity curve it generates. So this is being- So just to be to clear, there data. was no Euro in 76, right? No, so what, what's happened is um, it's been synthetically constructed based on the currencies at that time before the euro was created, Got it. but you can do that. And so yeah. we've synthetically constructed prior to the euro being officially announced uh, that to get a longer time series. Yes. But it is real market data. Uh, so yeah. we're using real market data here and then we're applying our trend following model to it. So we'll do a walkthrough of this and we'll discuss it as we're going through. And I'll let this run. Mm -hmm. So. Um, this is running from 1976, and as you can see, um, the model, you'll see points here where trades are being activated and when trades are being exited. Um, mm -hmm. Wait until uh, we get a bit of better data. So um, 
we'll notice the equity curve at the bottom of the screen here um, being produced as the trades are being undertaken. So in this case, um, we'll wait for a trade to activate. At the moment, it's dormant. No trends are being activated at the moment. Here we go. So we've got some um, activity here with trends. Um, it's moving pretty quickly. It's hard to describe, but you'll notice when we get to significant trending opportunities on the real market data, you'll see the green being long trends. So this is long. Uh, when we get to the red long trends, that's when it's short. Um, you'll see uh, red lines here being the trailing stops being activated as it's flowing through this process. But uh, we just, we're getting through it quickly. And you'll notice mm. that the equity curve is progressively rising. Here's a long trend Here's here. A nice trend, yep. Nice trend. So the whole purpose of this. I wish it could happen this, this fast in real life. Uh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> the whole purpose of this is just to demonstrate how uh, these trend following models operate on this real market data. And we plotted that real market data in red previously on that chart of spaghetti with the random equity curve, a uh, random mm -hmm. market data and the real market data. So we, we're seeing now how the trend following models are faring on this real market data. Um, it's getting there, mate, as a, as a walkthrough. Sort no, of no, this is good. So, um, you know, we're, we're making money. We are um, making money. So we've it. gone from $100,000 here up to $147,000 as we, we're currently now. This is one market. One market, so simple one strategies. Market, simple strategy. A couple of strategies. Can there see you go. Entering and exiting at different times, and we're done. So we're done. So um, that's produced that result. Um, there's the equity curve. Pretty good result. Um, but mind you, very volatile, and that's the nature of trend following. You'll notice that there is... Uh, 1,000 total trades, a profit factor of 1.66 on this, a drawdown of um, I think it's 9.92 percent over the since 1976. So mm -hmm. you know a typical trend following model applied mm. to one single market. Just remember, however, when we apply this at the portfolio level, we're doing this across hundreds of markets. But this mm. is just to show you one classic market that's um, had this model applied. So that's that example of. Uh, our trend following models applied to that real market data. So, so now what we've done is we've taken um, one of those randomized series that we generated before since 1976 and we're using the same trend following models. And we've taken a good example, that blue example, um, in that, that model. So mm -hmm. we're going to, we'd, we'd expect our trend following models to perform very well um, over that um, randomized data. We're yeah. now going to run it and we'll notice that um, it's still going to operate exactly the same way as we saw with the real market data, but it's just yeah. going to respond to the random market data. And as we're stepping through, you'll notice that um, it's very difficult to discern the difference between the random market data and the real market data. There's a short trend here. So I'll let this one run through and we'll look at the overall results in the equity curve when we have randomized that real market data of Euro USD using that really good example of the random data in blue. We'll notice that um, there are points in time where we do get trends and you'll see that in the equity curve where um, we get slight step ups in the equity curve, but you'll, you'll notice that none of them are enduring significantly. And as we're progressing through here, you'll see that the um, equity curve progressively gets worse and worse over the course of time. I don't want to preempt it. I'll let you come to that mm. conclusion yourself. 
but you'll see it happening here. There are moments in time it does offer trends. That's the random nature of market data. Mm. Um, there's a trend there. This is this short trend you just saw, saw there, uh, mm. which, which it was capitalizing on. But over the course of time, you'll see that it produces a totally different performance result than what the real market data did. And yet we're applying exactly the same trend-following models to this reshuffled data. And just um, just speak to the fact that somebody might be watching saying, right, Rich, but you've, um, you've optimised the first strategy for that contract and you've um, you know, essentially curve fit a, a trend-following model to the euro USD so that anything else that you run it on is, isn't going to be as good. So just speak to the fact that this is not a, okay, so this a model a fit to... Model. So what this model, this model is applicable to all of the, you know, I've, I've got um, about 70 markets I'm trading now. These models are applied to all those markets. It isn't curve fit to any particular mm. market at all. It's... Um, it's the optimal model across all of those markets. Mm. So this is different to where we're trying to fit a model for the precise characteristics of a market. Because we're looking at these outliers, which we believe are universal features across any liquid market data, because remember I showed you that histogram with the towels, mm. that is applicable to any liquid market data. I'm interested only in the outlier aspects of that market data and then trying to avoid the bulk of the distribution, which is to me more efficient and also captures the signature of individual market characteristics, I avoid that and I'm focusing on those tail regions. And so my models are very underfit mm. um, to any particular market data source. So here's the result of that random trade, mate, uh, that, that uh, applying it to the random market yep, data the, the, series. The, the trending. Uh... Data series that looked like similar number of trades, one thousand and forty six trades. I think uh -huh. the last one was one thousand trades, but the profit factor point five six. Wow, big drawdown twenty five point six four. And yet, visually, it looked like a cracker mm. of a market data to trade. And this is because even though visually it looked like this, uh, it didn't have this bias in the data series that that gives trends its significant enduring features and um, suppresses the volatility of price movement. So if you imagine when you're applying a, a, a bias to a market data series, you're stretching it in direction. And in the stretching process, you're also reducing the volatility in the stretching process with the bias. Mm. And what that means is that when you're applying a trend following model to that bias data series, it's capturing better form trends, less noise within the trends, more signal within the trends, because the class of trend has been stretched with this bias. Mm. And that's therefore meant that it's, there's less whipsaws in that trend and it's more enduring in nature. It's a better class of trend. And that's why when we're trading um, this, this market data series with serial correlation in it, that's what serial correlation is doing to uh, our edge. It's increasing our edge because it's creating a better class of trend with more enduring properties. And we see that in the results. So that was one example of trading one of those random market um, data series that mm. shuffled the serial correlation out of it. So um, let's look at the results of all of those random um, market data series in terms yeah. of the equity curve it produces. So we had 13 different 
randomized equity curves uh, market data series. We traded it using that same trend following model across those 13 random series. You'll notice that over the long term, all of them failed miserably. Mm. Mm. But you'll also notice that in the short term, and when I say the short term, this is from January 1972 up to um, January uh, 1980, we see a period of 10 years mm. where it appeared that this was a cracker of a model yes. producing a magnificent equity curve. Um, this this model here was a good one scary. as well. And we're obviously trading long-term <laughs> systems here, Rich, but you could, you could um, in, in a fractal-like way, apply this to you know, your preferred time frame, really, and consider that if you're trading something even at a higher frequency, the, the lesson is going to be the same that... Um, for X amount of sample. months or yeah. years, you yeah. can really consider yourself a genius and have a great model, and it's entirely random. And if you consider it, um, all of these um, random equity curves were produced on the same trend-following models. There was about a 1,000 trades for each of it. Mm. So you're looking at about 200 trades, in this mm. case with uh, long-term trend-following models, took 10 years. It takes about 200 trades or 10 years to identify that actually there is no edge. In fact, we wouldn't know at this point in time. It would be down here that we'd be mm. suspecting that there was no edge in that model. Um, so that's, uh, say, um, 400 trades well, and uh, yeah. about 20 years before you knew you were trading dodgy models. We're ripping the Band-Aid off here, so we're going to lose all of our subscribers, but just before <laughs> they go, it's better to know the, this up front, right? The truth will set you free. If you know this, you're going to walk away from so much um, you know, delusional advertising and, and, and other models and fixes and get-rich-quick schemes, and you can focus on practical reality. Yeah. And, um, and it really, I think, you know, any trader who's learning their way, one of the most efficient things they can do is have a good first couple of years, just like that, that, that story I mentioned before of, of Brent wasting 10 years, let's say, on, on something. Yeah. If you can start off in that right way, it's just like studying for any other um, career path, invest well in your early years and get properly educated, um, you can, um, I mean, you, it's really the only way you're going to have long-term success. What, what they've got to do is they've got to look at uh, things such as we're presenting today with open eyes and they've got to develop realistic expectations. Mm. And things such as this, I think, are great for slapping people around the face and saying, wake up to reality, here's reality, um, because there is so much hype in this industry, Simon, as you and I both know. Um, there are, there are, are people that are, are exploiting this, this property of random, you know, markets, uh, mm. you know, saying that there's edge in it when clearly there's no edge in it. But what I'm going to do, just to really further slap people in the face, is I'm going to now compare and contrast these random equity curves with that real equity curve we produced on the real market data before yes. we shuffled it. Yes. And there you go. So those oh. random equity curves all disappear to oblivion because mm. they're so immaterial. We thought that they were material, but look at the real market data mm. and the trend-following system applied to the real market data. So remember I was talking to you before about the bias in the data? The bias is what's creating this difference. 
Yeah. And, and just for the you. audio listener, I think we lost them long ago and, and they've worked out that they need to come and watch this on YouTube. But, I mean, the the uh, the collection of 13, 14 randomly generated equity curves are now just flat lines along the bottom with the uh, the real market data creating otherwise an attractive long-term upward sloping equity curve. That's right. So that, I think it's fascinating. Uh, now, remember, this is only being applied to trend-following models. So mm. it's not to say this is universally applicable, but it's certainly in my landscape of trend and mm. tails. This is what gives me heart in my process, makes me realise that I've got a robust technique here that, that isn't overfit. It mm. isn't... Um, trading signals of randomness. There is something really going on with our trend following models that is exploiting opportunities in real market data that isn't fit to the noise. Mm. Um, this is what's allowing me to gain confidence in my models. And mm. even though it's applied on random you know, market data series, it's a great exercise to develop confidence in your process. Yeah, so you could do this no matter what kind of trader you were. And I think the, the confidence that this brings is a confidence that the efficient market theory as you've learnt it in the textbooks uh, is not necessarily correct, right? This is where we're really scientifically validating that. That's right. Look, it's not correct, but I tell you what, markets are incredibly efficient mm. as we've seen here. So it's not far off, mm. but it's sufficiently far off for us to yes. extract an edge from the market. And, and, and as you say, they're, they're efficient enough to cause you uh, concern if you... Um, if you're relying on patterns too heavily that you can see, yeah, you know, everywhere. Yeah. Or, or the other one I love, of course, is, uh, you know, listening to a a new friend that's, that's just begun trading. They've opened a demo account. They've been doing it for three or four weeks, maybe three or four months, trading in paper, and, and, and they can't wait to tell you all about it and how much money they're making. Um, you know, that's, that's also suffice to say... Um, just not enough data. Yeah, mm. exactly. All right. So here what we've got is, so with that last example of Euro USD, in terms of a diversified portfolio, it's going to be one of these outcomes in a diversified portfolio. So what I've done here is I've just said, all right, we're exploiting a weak edge with all of the liquid markets we trade. Here is a composite of 40 markets and the equity curves produced with our trend, that same trend following model against all of those equity markets. You'll notice that some of them don't perform that well at all over the time series, but they don't deteriorate significantly. They're not mm. creating negative skew to this result. They're not creating significant adversity to this portfolio result. All of them over the course of a long-term data series has an edge in them, but it's weak. Mm. And this is the nature of the composite of all of those individual markets of 40 markets traded in a diversified portfolio. Now, these markets, we're seeking uncorrelated properties of these markets. So in other words, when one market is significantly performing well, uh, that might be compensating for another market performing poorly over that period of time and vice versa. So the uncorrelated nature of these markets does a wonderful thing when we compile this into one single portfolio, mm. which we'll now go to now. Yeah, so now we're so, showing the, the second, you know, really important point here or the, is that the holy grail of diversification. 
This is a holy, this is using this weak edge that we've uncovered in the market, a very slight edge of the serial correlation across every one of our liquid market um, data series that we've got 40 markets in this case. Now what we've done is we've consolidated it using the same trend following models into one portfolio equity curve. And this is it. This is before we apply any compounding to it. So this is strictly applying the same risk bet per market um, for 40 markets. There's the equity curve. Mm. Very low drawdown, 4.2%. Good KGAR, 6.6%, running from 1970 up to current day. This is before we do any compounding or lifting this through leverage. Mm. This is the result. You know, I, uh, let's look at some of the trades, 15,000 trades. Now, mm. because we're applying the same model across all of our markets, we get massive sample size here, 15,000, to give us confidence in our process. It's running over 52 years, this backtest, running over many, many different market regimes, which is what we want. In fact, sample size is less important than um, performance over different market regimes. So, yeah. um, for instance, if we were using a high-frequency trader, we might get massive sample size in one regime. That's not mm. telling us much. But when we're applying our process over, you know, from 1970 up to the current day, we know we've got in there the, the 1987 Black, Black Friday, Black we've Friday. got the GFC, we've got the tech boom collapse, yeah. um, all of these crisis, COVID, Asian towers, crisis, all of these different regimes. Inflationary. Exactly. And we notice that the trajectory of the portfolio is upward lifting. Drawdowns are very limited. This is what we're after. We'll also know the win rate is only 39%. 39.7%, mm -hmm. typical for trend-following models, less than 50%. Mm. But what we notice is the average hold here of our trades, 87 days, the maximum hold, some trends were holding for 3,282 days. That's got to be like eight years or something. Exactly. This is the nature or of trade, serial yeah. correlation um, yeah. and our long-term models. Some of them can be in the market generating significant opportunities for a long period of time. The average win in terms of R multiple, so we talked about the percent win of 40%, average win is three times R. In other words, R is the, the uh, distance between the uh, initial entry and our initial stop. So that means that our average win over the 15,000 trades is three times that stop distance. Mm -hmm. But then the maximum win, we see this is where we've caught some significant outliers. The maximum win here is 117 times R. You can see how those spectacular significant wins from the outliers are what pay for. So many of those losses encountered with the 60% of losses mm. um, in our portfolio. So that, that's looking at things from, okay, let, let's bring these markets together. The weak edge that we've identified in this, um, we're not exploiting a strong edge here. It's a very weak edge. You've got to be patient with your models. You can't um, uh, you know, um, identify opportunities without significant sample size. Otherwise, you could be fooled by randomness, all of these factors. So just to close, mate, we're getting to the, to the end. I just want to once more drum in this principle of how our weak edge plays out. So here we've got um, equity curves produced. Uh, one equity curve, the one in red, is a real equity curve of a real trend following model applied to real market data. All of the other equity curves 
are equity curves produced by trend-following models on random market data. Mm. So you'll notice here that after 500 trades, these random variants are significantly powering ahead of the real performance here. Mm. So let's say that we had um, a, a back test of over 500 trades, say, comparing 30 models, okay? And we use this as a basis to rank their performance. Mm. In our selection of the models that we tend to like to trade, we would be selecting these ones here, the which ones. were the results of randomness, mm. which is a problem, which is where selection bias starts mm. getting into our process if we're not using significant data samples here. Mm. And 500 trades is quite a large trade history. Mm -hmm. So you see how important it becomes. And remember, though, this is for trend-following models. So, um, But uh, what we find is, okay, so the real edge is going to be displayed by this model in red, but it's not showing itself after 500 trades. Yes, after 500 trades, it's just the middle of the range system, middle of the exactly. road. Exactly. Yep. So, you know, um, this says that if we're going to do a back test, make sure it's over 500 mm. trades. Make it. I'm, I'm guessing what the next slide's going to be. This is 2,000 trades. Right, we're yep. still not getting a result. Ooh. We're getting an okay result, but it's not defeating the best random no. result here. Starting to defeat by almost all the others, though. But... Yes, there is a slow deterioration of all of the others yes. after 2,000 trades. Yeah. Let's go to... 5,000. 5,000, we've got a clear winner here. Yes. But it's taken 5,000 trades to get there, and mm. it, it's still not looking that pretty to us. Mm. Um, here's, here's one of the random. That's, this has lasted 5,000 yeah. trades, which in terms of um, most traders, they wouldn't last 5,000 no. trades. Well, they wouldn't have a history of 5,000 trades. Yeah, there, there's been some Absolutely. serious drawdowns. Now let's go to 10,000 trades. Here right, we go. Cool. Everything else just completely Everything disappears. Everything else disappears, and here the bias, we can see the bias playing out. Mm. This is like the bias coin that we're flicking. It mm. takes so many flips of that bias coin to determine that an edge actually exists and that a bias actually exists in it. Mm. It's the same with our trend-following models. So I think this powerfully just demonstrates. Oh, it really does. And it really yeah. demonstrates how important the process for strategy design and backtest and and um, making sure that one isn't overfitting, how important that process is. Um, it's just critical to get that right and to know why you're progressing each step with with selecting a particular model and going live with that model. Wow, Rich. There it is, mate. Mate, that is just uh, brilliant. Thanks so much for that. I think we, um, I think that was all pretty self-explanatory and apologies to those who, are, who have persevered with the audio, but um, obviously you'll want to go back and look at the charts. Um, and I, I just think this is like the greatest podcast ever done for quantitative <laughs> traders. <laughs> They're going to love that. I mean, it, it's, it's just so important, isn't it? I, I really love it. I, I we so. could we could it, ramble on about this now, but I think we just let them um, go and meditate on this and <laughs> cry in their soup for a little while. And 
yes. but wake up in the morning uh, knowing with new resolve, direction. new resolve to to quantitatively validate things using massive sample size, uh, multiple regimes. There is a way to get around this, mm. but it's it's not the way that most people that they want the quick fix, mm. the easy solution. It's going to take time. It's got to be logic-driven and and scientifically sort of grounded. Uh, Right. So one last thing, Rich, of course, is that the tool that uh, we've used to generate this random data, we're happy to share with the audience for a couple of bucks. They can pick it up on our um, Buy Me A Coffee site. And that tool uh, that Fred from ATS and yourself have produced actually is a great little Excel VBA add-in that... um, allows you to select what kind of uh, instrument you want to produce for, be it stocks, futures, FX, and, of course, to make sure that it's suitable for um, for my kind of equities models, which we should do a follow-up show on, on doing this with equities and, and my kinds of systems. But um, uh, you can produce any number of equities um, time series so that if you wanted to trade a portfolio of a thousand stocks and they're all random data, you could. So um, I guess head on over to um, buymeacoffee.com, I think it's forward slash uh, at the algo or algo advantage. Uh, I'll put in the show notes, but if you if you look for the algor- algorithmic advantage on buy me a coffee, then you're going to find it, and under the extras there, we'll we'll pop that little tool up there so that uh, you too can have fun with with random randomly generated data. We should remind you that the conversations on this show are informal and for entertainment purposes only. Certainly, any general advice you may hear is obviously not specific to your needs, goals, or objectives. So, nothing discussed on the show should be considered as investment advice. If you want that, you'll need to actually do your own research and speak with your financial advisor. Remember, trading can be extremely risky and past performance is not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe or leave us a review. And if you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Bye for now.